This is the Australian Hunting Podcast, hunting, shooting and fishing radio on the AHP Digital Radio Network. Visit us at australianhuntingpodcast.com.au. Sit back, relax and enjoy. Here's the host of the show, Jason Selms. Welcome back to AHP. Thank you for joining me. I do appreciate it. Again, of course, as usual, I want to thank all my major supporters on Patreon. Without you guys, the podcast wouldn't be what it is today, and I want to thank you for all your financial support. If you do want to support AHP on Patreon, you can go to patreon.com forward slash AHP, and you'll be able to get all the podcasts uh, before general listenership and a few other perks as well. So join me at patreon.com forward slash AHP. But today I'm talking, and I'm going to bring him on the line just a few minutes. I'm talking to Nick Morton from Ozcut Broadheads. I interviewed Nick at last year's in 2017, the iHunt Expo in Sydney. And we had a good chat about his broadheads and the excellent broadheads he sells bow hunters, not only in Australia, uh, but also overseas as well. We're going to chat to Nick about you know hunting with bows, you know stalking pigs, and also something that's very important as well, which I wanted to touch on since I've actually done this show and do a bit more about bow hunting is the stalking factor how hard it is to stalk is stalking for different times of game different and what can people learn about stalking to make them a better bow hunter we also talk about types of bows new technology coming into the industry we also talk about you know ranging game when stalking with a bow and we also talk about his recent trip overseas uh, to africa and his upcoming trip to the united states so i'll bring nick onto the show nick morton welcome to ahp mate thanks for joining me i do appreciate your time Always a pleasure, Jay. Always a pleasure, mate. Mate, we met each other at the iHunt Expo and you were selling your products there, Ozcut Broadheads. Tell us about the company. Tell us about what you do. We did, mate. Yeah, so um, Ozcut Broadheads, um, I guess, is my baby um, producing broadheads. So um, for those that don't know the backstory, I guess, back in, I think it was 2014, um, I was starting to get pretty serious into my bow hunting and things like that. And it was a time in the market where Blackstump Broadheads, which was a very prominent brand in the country, um, seemed to stop producing or were very hard to acquire. And this sort of put a bit of a, a gap in the market for a lot of Aussie guys. Um, I, I went through the usual American brands. They were hard to acquire. They were expensive. Uh, a lot of things like that, which led me to think, I can do this better. Um I'm a little bit OCD with my gear, so I set about um, in designing a broadhead in which I wanted to shoot. So about six, 12 months after that, I ended up coming up with our first design, which was a 185-grain two-blade broadhead. Now, back in the day, I had no intentions of starting this as a business at any sort of scale. It was just more of a project and something for myself and mates to use. Um, However, with we gained a lot of support really quickly, which led to me bringing in new models, sizes, series. And I guess in the last two and a half years, we've had a massive exponential uh, set of growth occur. So we've gone from, a, I guess, a really small business to probably one of the larger bow hunting brands in Australia, starting to branch out into America, Canada, New Zealand, South Africa, basically all over the world. And it's, it's really humbling to uh, see the process that's unfolded in the brand that we've built um, and the community of people which support it. It's, it's, been, a, it's been a really awesome process, actually. I've, I've had a lot of fun. Yeah, just for people so they can get a bit more, know a bit more about you, where you're sort of, what area you're from and how old are you? Okay, so um, 25 years young. Um, so living down in Newcastle in the Hunter Valley, um, in which I do most of my hunting down in this way. So 
spend a fair bit of time in the New England ranges hunting boars and things like that, especially boars, sort of uh, my favourite animals to hunt. When did you start hunting, man? What age and how did you get into it? Was it your family that uh, got into hunting or...? Not really. I had no external influences um, to get me into hunting as such. I grew up on a little bit of land as a kid, so all I can remember on a weekend was I was out making bows out of sticks and string and hunting rabbits from a young age, and that just put me down the path, I guess. At around During school, it was always hard to get out hunting when I had no one else to do it with, but from about the age of 14 or 15 was when I started getting a bit more serious about it, starting to go on hunts um, and progressively becoming a better bow hunter, I guess. But in particular, I would say the last seven years, I've been really serious about it. What did you do when you came home, I guess? I, mean, I presume when you were living with your parents when you were younger and they, you said, oh, mum and dad, I want to become a bow hunter. I want to buy my first bow. What did they say? Uh, well, it wasn't too far afield. Like I grew up fishing and things like that. My, my dad... When he was younger, he used to hunt with rifles, but had given that up long before I came around. So it wasn't a foreign concept or anything like that, um, but it was just something that they didn't do at the time. And it was difficult for me to go out and do, being young, no form of transport. Hey, I want to get into this crazy sport. I want to go out in the mountains for days on end and hunt feral animals. But once I got that bit of independence, getting like getting a license at 17, that's when it all opened up and changed for me. Yeah. What about why why bows in particular and why bow hunting? Generally, not always. Obviously, there's a lot of definitely a lot of bow hunters out there, which you can agree. But normally, you know, not normally. I shouldn't say that because it's never normal. But um, you know, some people like me started on rifles, and I've thought about getting a bow. Then I thought, well, I'm pretty useless at stalking and that sort of thing. So a lot of people tend to yeah you know, gravitate. I guess I'm not sure if it's because they you know guns are an interesting thing, but they tend to gravitate to that area. Then get into bows sometimes. What was it about bow hunting straight away that you said, yep, yeah, may not necessarily want to get into rifles i love bows i want to start bow hunting yeah that's a good question and to be honest i don't know the exact answer i remember as a kid i i watched a lot of brad smith's dvds everyone's seen the two blade bow hunting dvds if you're a bow hunter and i would watch those videos of them hunting boars and deer and buffalo and things like that and i just said to myself i'm going to do that when i'm older i just i knew i wanted to do it it had such a gravitational draw for it like I dabbled with a little bit of guns and things like that, but the fulfillment and the reward and the whole process and the closeness with the animal, the relationship to develop hunting with a bow, to me, that was far more rewarding um, than hunting with a rifle. So with a bow, yes, you're going to shoot less. Yes, it's going to be a lot harder. Yes, it's a lot more frustrating. But when you execute all of those things perfectly and you pull off a good shot and you cleanly harvest an animal, to me, there's no better feeling in the world than that right there that's that's what it's about for me got to give credit to the bow hunters and that's a interesting skill to uh, get that close to animal and you know i spent years i think i've told you this before i spent years trying to get my first deer even with a rifle and i was i was blowing it a lot with rifle shooting one time i did miss which was a fair clean miss other times i would not be stalking properly I'd be in the wrong position. I'd spend all morning out in the field. And then the guys, you might get a, a message if you got coverage to the guys saying, hey, listen, come back for lunch. And walking on the way back to the car to go back for lunch, I see the arse end of two deer running off. And that happens so many times. It's just unbelievable. So you've got to give credit to the bow hunters. But what is the bow hunting community like? What's it? Is it close group knit of people? What's it like? Yeah, um, I'd say bow hunting, obviously the demographic in Australia is far smaller compared to your rifle hunters and dog hunters and things like that. So it is a close-knit community and 
I'd say everyone knows everyone type of thing. Um, but it's a very friendly community, you know. Um, if there's people out there who want help, there's always someone willing to offer their knowledge or experience or, or their skills to help someone out. So I remember, um, I think it was the Wild Deer Expo earlier on this year. Um, there was about 150 of us down there, all bow hunters, all, all at the one venue there after the expo that day, and everyone got along like a house on fire, you know. There were no negativity, nothing like that. It's, it was a really, really positive thing to see. So um, being a small, close-knit community, obviously we're growing slowly, but being small, we don't have much power in the scheme of things. So I guess staying united on that front is what we need to do. Tell us some positives about bow hunting. Positives about bow hunting. Uh, patience. Patience is a virtue, they say. But um, I guess what bow hunting has done for me has it's put me on a different level with the animals you hunt, uh, a different level of appreciation, I would say. For example, there's one boar at one of my blocks I hunt up in the Hunter that I've been chasing for a better part of two and a half years now, this same particular boar. I've had about... 10 or 12 close encounters on him. I've been at full draw about five times. I've come so close to killing this pig, I just can't execute it. Um, doing that, I, I've learned all his habits, his whereabouts at different times of year, what he does. I've been able to pattern his thought process as such. Um, now, I'm not saying you wouldn't be able to do this with a rifle, but the requirements of a bow having to get so close to the animals, um, get under that 30 metres, read everything so perfectly, you develop sort of an intrinsic relationship with them, I guess, like you're thinking like they are to be where they are at certain times of year, certain weather, certain times of day. Um, It's really taught me to slow down and I guess take a lot more out of what I'm getting from in the bush. Like going out, it's not just about harvesting an animal. I might do 10 trips without releasing an arrow and I'm totally fine with that if that makes sense. It's it's a process which I'm happy to be a part of. Negatives made about bow hunting. Any negatives about bow hunting or, or the community or anything to do with bow hunting? Oh, obviously, there's like you get a little bit of tall poppy syndrome that you see from time to time popping up. You see, see if someone shoots a good animal, they'll be like, oh, what's it score or things like that. Um, but, but as a whole, mate, you know, like it, it's generally pretty good, the whole community um, out there. I guess... The only thing negative with bow hunting... Um, Come on, I know there's something there. You're wanting to say something. I can feel it. <laughs> I, I'm just saying um, more so from a starting out perspective, it's very hard to get into and get into on the right foot. It's it's a long process and very daunting for someone to get into because we, we don't have very many systems in place in Australia or the information that you need essentially for what gear and things like that is a lot harder to acquire than it should be. Things like arrow setup, broadhead setup, what arrow weight, what poundage, how should I be stalking this, how should I be doing that? It's not something you can exactly just go out and Google. Um, So being so small, obviously we don't have those foundations set up, but it's something – I've got a few initiatives with Ozcut that I'm looking at putting out to – I guess assist people who want to start bow hunting, be able to do it better and easier. So it'll make that transition from being a rifle shooter or a non-hunter at all far easier. So I guess it's a very hard sport to get into as such. All right, Nick, mate, tell us about products you sell, mate. What's, uh, what's in the Ozcut Broadheads website that people can come in there and purchase? Tell us about some of the products. Okay, so 
I'll give you uh, pretty well a basic overview of the lineup. Um, currently, we have three series of broadheads um, in production. So we have our elite series, which is what I would call our flagship broadhead. So they're a solid one-piece CNC broadhead made out of a high-carbon tool steel. So tough as they come. Shoot them at a brick wall if you want. You know That's the sort of punishment they're going to withstand. Um, and I have those in a two and three three blade configuration from 100 grain all the way through to 175 grain. At the time we're, we're speaking about this now, which is uh, October, being September, having just gone in America, we've been absolutely smashed with stock levels. So we've got a lot of people waiting up on stock um, just through sheer custom custom demand, which is a great thing. Um, but we're working on getting those back up and running. So I guess that's a bit of a testament to the sales and the growth of the business. Um, and then... What, what I brought out next was a takedown series. The takedowns, I guess, are aimed at the Aussie market a bit more. And our hunting demographic, we tend to have a lot of guys who do a lot more hunting than your conventional American or someone in Africa or something like that. So what a lot of Aussies look for, they look for a value-for-money broadhead that's not going to hurt their hip pocket, I guess. So the takedowns I produced to a price point. So six broadheads for under $50 that are going to do the job but also – still achieve that $50 price point. So I've got those in 100 grain, 125 grain and 150 grain and they're a two-blade broadhead, which is pretty well your stock standard broadhead for an Aussie to run, which is a two-blade. Um, our next broadhead, which is only a new release, is called the Ultra 4. I'm actually looking at a pack in front of me here now. Um, so that's our first four-blade broadhead that we've released. Personally, I'm not a four-blade shooter as such, but to cater for the four-blade shooters out there in the market, particularly more so in America, looking towards that. Um, I've put in features that I like in a broadhead and strengths and applied it to a four-blade design. So really excited about that design. Um, starting to get a fair bit of traction, a lot of people looking into those now with the Ultra 4s. And then launching early 2019, I have a – it's patent pending at the moment. I have a design which I'll be calling a Hurricane. Um so, yeah, that's patent pending. We'll be launching 2019, and that's about all I can say about that one at the moment. But it's going to be a game changer. I can I can really 100% guarantee I'm, I'm excited to see that one hit the market. Is it an interesting process for patenting and expensive? It's a painful and very expensive process. Uh, yeah, you're not going to get much change out of uh, 10 plus K in looking at doing a patent. So I've, so I've learned recently. <laughs> well, you better start, people that are listening to this show, better start buying the new products then when they come out. <laughs> no, it's... Um, Big tip for uh, them, buy them. Make it worthwhile for Nick, guys. Come on. <laughs> yeah, don't let Nick eat lentils. <laughs> Mate, tell us, you were talking about that when you were first talking uh, about the broadheads. How many shots can you make with one broadhead? Again, forgive people that listen to the show. Obviously, I'm not a bow hunter. I find it very riveting, very interesting. So hopefully when people listen to this show, whether new or more experienced people can you know, use some of this information to go out if they want to become bow hunter, and ultimately that's the most important thing. Yeah, of course. So typically a lot of American style and what I'll call your weaker design heads, they're often referred to as one-shot wonders. You might harvest one animal with that broadhead, and it's in an unusable state after that. Whereas the Elite Series, which we've designed, I've had guys shooting in excess of 15, 20 animals with the one broadhead. So essentially you're only going to replace that if you lose it. Obviously, when you're talking about our value-for-money broadheads, the takedown series compared to an elite series, that's apples and oranges there. Um, obviously, they're not going to be a one-shot wonder, 
but they're not they're not going to withstand the same amount of damage as an elite series, which you can literally shoot a rock with, sharpen it back up, and put it back in your quiver. So we aim for durability is one of the things we go for and look for in the design. So particularly with the elite series, um, what I say to people, there is nothing in that broadhead that will ever fail on an animal. You you release that arrow and that broadhead's going to do its job every single time. It's got no moving parts, no screws, no nothing. Nothing to fail, nothing to break, nothing to snap. So super reliable, use it over and over again until you lose it, essentially. The new Zeiss Conquest V4 line of high-performance rifle scopes combines tried-and-true Zeiss optics with a rugged and functional design, providing high-definition glass. Enhanced with T-Star and low-to-tech protective lens coatings produces 90% to the eye-light transmission. This means excellent low-light performance and resolution across the entire magnification range. Zeiss Conquest V4 rifle scopes were designed as a lightweight, high-performance scope for demanding hunting and shooting applications. Visit osaaustralia.com.au to find your local dealer. Zeiss, we make it visible. Is deformation of the head the only time you'd look at replacing it and can you resharpen them? Yeah, so obviously when you come into contact with things like sandstone and rocks and things like that, which are typically harder than any bone structure you're going to find in an animal, yes, you may you may burr a tip over or something like that. And all a lot of guys do is simply just file it back into somewhat of the shape that might burr over one or two mil. And yeah, um, resharping, we've actually got a sharpening device for our two blade broadheads, which is the Too Easy Broadhead Sharpening. That's another product I brought out earlier this year. So it's basically designed to, it's got the correct angle and bevel uh, for a two blade broadhead. And it's just a matter of sliding a broadhead back and forth through uh, the sharpening canal and you're good to go. So it's, it's a really cool product, actually. I'm pretty proud of that one. Four blade versus two that you were talking about before, or two versus four blade. What's really the difference? And you said you preferred two. Why is that? What's the difference? I get this question at expos all the time. New people coming up. Should I shoot a two blade? Should I shoot a three blade? Should I shoot a four blade? In short, everything works. But then when we delve into it and analyze it a bit deeper, a two blade broadhead is your safest option. It has the least surface area and best cutting approach angle so it's a more of an acute angle than obtuse angle so what a two blade broadhead is going to do it's going to offer the least amount of chance of deflecting it's going to penetrate the most and the furthest however it's going to cut the smallest size hole then we move to a three blade broadhead it has an extra blade than a two blade so it's obviously cutting more obviously that angle is going to increase so it's more obtuse so it's going to penetrate less it's going to make it more prone to deflection if you hit a, hit a scapula or something like that on an angling shot. And then we go to a four blade. It's got another blade. It's going to cut even more, um, create an even larger wound channel and allow for even more blood loss. But it's got 200% more resistance than a two blade broadhead. So looking at that, and then you look at the type of game you hunt, obviously you're not going to shoot a buffalo with a four blade broadhead because they're, they're built like a tank basically. And you've got all this resistance from the broadhead already you're going to want to look at something that's going to penetrate a lot better, such as a two-blade broadhead. So in essence, it's a case-by-case scenario of what's best. They all will work, but myself personally, I shoot our 150-grain three-blade. However, it's in a one-inch cutting diameter um, as opposed to one inch and an eighth, which is your standard cutting diameter. The reason for that is I find that being one inch, it has a narrower profile. So it's a more streamlined profile, so it penetrates more. 
It has that third cutting blade. So particularly on big boars, you can open up the fighting pad really well. It's not just going to be a slit that can close over and allow for no blood to come out. And it's still going to, realistically, if I hit a scapula or a heavy bone structure like that, it's not going to deflect. It's going to punch through that bone being a small profile. So I've narrowed it down to that 150-grain three-blade and essentially used that for every game animal I've hunted thus far. The lower the blades, obviously, is there more... If it doesn't, we don't hit bony structures. There more chance of a pass through through the two blade, etc. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. So obviously, the least resistance of two blades more likely to pass through than a three blade versus a four blade, and vice versa. So, and and this is and this is one of the things that I spoke about before the limited knowledge on the internet. You know, a lot of sites will read that a hundred grain broadhead is an optimal broadhead. However, over here in Australia, most guys. 100-grain broadheads don't exist, essentially, whereas in America, it's it's commonplace. I recommend to most guys to shoot a 125-grain broadhead minimum, possibly 150-grain, even when they're starting out. So there's a lot of conflicting information out there on the internet, which makes it very confusing to people. Do I start with a two-blade? Do I start with a three-blade? What weight do I start with? So, so it's a confusing process to get your head around. But at the end of the day, what's best is what works for you and what you trust. So if someone's getting into bow hunting and they want to specifically pick a weight, what weight goes with what different animal here in Australia? Or does the 150 cover that sort of large game deer, pigs, say goats, that type of thing? Typically, if someone's starting out and they're unsure what to use, I'll recommend they use a 125 grain two blade simply because you can't go wrong. You cannot go wrong with that setup. Do a good shot. The animal's going to go down quickly and ethically. Does it make a difference in extra weight from the from the broadhead, as in distance to shooting, that type of thing? Or ha- what, what would be the pros and cons of a lower weight versus a higher weight broadhead? Okay, so the pros of a lower weight broadhead, you have a faster and therefore flatter shooting arrow. Whereas with a heavier broadhead, you have a slower and you have a slower arrow. However, it's going to penetrate more. So with bow hunting, Distance is pretty important with judging. Even if you use a rangefinder, you might range a distance and it'll say 33 metres. You'll draw back, the animal will take three steps and then be 36. If you don't add on that extra distance, you might hit two and a half inches low, even though you've only misjudged by 30 metres, uh, by three metres. So a lot of people opt for the faster broadhead, thinking that, okay, I don't have to worry about that, uh, that distance compensation and the arrow's going really fast and it's going to penetrate more. Where in actual fact... A slower, heavier arrow with more weight at front, which is what we call FOC, forward of centre. So if you have more weight at the front of the arrow and a heavier arrow, the front of the arrow, if you can think about this, is being is dragging the rest of the arrow through the animal, not relying on the back of the arrow pushing the front of the arrow forward, if you can try and wrap your head around that. So a heavier broadhead definitely equates, in most situations, obviously you can go too far, but in most situations, a heavier broadhead will result in more penetration. Renowned for their strength, reliability and attention to detail, Moroku shotguns are the perfect example of what a sporting shotgun should be. Moroku have been producing quality products for over a century and sold in Australia since 1963. Each Moroku shotgun is crafted with precision, from the MK Trap and sporting models to the all-round best-selling field shotgun, the MK70. Visit morokushotguns.com.au for more details and stockists.
what countries do you sell to, mate? I saw I'm just on your website now. It says you've got, just for the people that are buying, free free US and Canadian shipping and orders over 150. Where have you been selling uh, broadheads to and what's the response been to that? Uh, okay, so we obviously ship worldwide, um, being online-based. Starting with a very heavy presence in uh, the US and Canada, but obviously standard countries like New Zealand, South Africa, Namibia, I've sent some random stuff to places like Botswana. I sent some to Kuwait last week, Germany, I believe. Uh, where else I've sent some? Becoming Hawaii. international. Oh, definitely, most definitely. Like we're sending out international orders every single day, um, and it's really good. Especially, I went to, I've been to a few expos in America, and you set up the booth in the first day, and people will come around and be like, "Yeah, yeah, I've seen you guys, I've heard of you guys," and it's in a whole another country. So it's really cool to see that side of the business growing. Mate, you went overseas to Africa, if I'm correct. What did you do over there, and what did you enjoy, and what did you get to shoot, man? So uh, I went to Namibia with Osambay Nord um, Safaris with Harold, my mate. Um, I met Harold one of the Aussie expos a couple of years back. I can't even recall which one. But uh, basically ended up teeing up a trip with him over there at his uh, hunting lodges. So just to give you guys a bit of a rundown on that, Harold runs free-range hunting safaris in Namibia, so for your planes game. Um, and I went over there with Liam Woods. And we had an absolute ball. Um, I think between the two of us, we harvested 19 animals um, and getting all of those on film, which was the main um, idea of the trip over there, to get as much content as we could. But everything from warthogs, jackals, oryx, uh, Liam managed to spot and stalk a kudu bull, which was absolutely amazing to do, um, quite a feat. Uh, Wildebeest... A harder beast, which we, we hunted hard for five days. Um, a harder beast was one of the animals on my list um, that I really, really wanted. And we spent five days um, chasing bulls and had close calls, very close calls for, for five days until I got a really mature bull on the last day. But um, it, it was a different experience to what I thought it would be. I went over there thinking it would be really easy and, and you sit in a tree stand or whatever and animals would come into water and you just shoot them. When in actual fact, when you have animals that are preyed upon by lions and leopards and things like that, their senses become a whole nother level compared to what we have here in Australia. Like, you think, the, you think the fallow deer is switched on, times that by about five, and you've got an oryx. Wow. Um, we're, like, we're, we had a few days where we went out and spot and stalk, and you'd be tucked tied into a bush in the shadows. No way it could see you, and the oryx would be feeding out in the scrub 150, 180 yards away. Not there moving at all. It'd walk out into the open, turn its head, and just pin you straight away and run off. And this happened a few days in a row, and I, I was questioning if it was doable with a bow to get in under 50 yards on them things. Um, but we were able to do it with Liam's kudu. Um, I remember that morning we, we were supposed to be back by 11 o'clock, and we didn't shoot the kudu until about 10.50 in the morning after we had to crawl in on him and his cows feeding across a bit of an open plain and caught them in some thick scrub. Liam was able to get into about 45 and put an arrow through the bull. So basically went and seen the bull, yep, found him, drove back to the homestead, which was about a 15K drive back, got Harold and said, we've shot a kudu, and he didn't believe us. And he goes, no, no, what did you shoot? And we said, oh, we spot and stalked a kudu. And he's like, Nah, bullshit. You haven't done it. You're joking, aren't you? Where is it? 
anyway, back and forth, we, we got him in the car, went down, checked it out, and it was you could tell he was pretty gobsmacked. Um, I think it was the first spot and stalk kudu they've had on that face in about 15 years with a bow and arrow. So definitely yeah. a, a really, really switched on animal. And for young lamb to do that, I was I was so happy to be a part of it. It was it was an awesome experience. Have you got a YouTube channel or something? Do you release the footage, or what's the plans for that? Yeah, we do have we do have a YouTube channel. So Ozcut Broadheads um, has a YouTube channel if you want to get on there and check it out. But basically, all of our hunts and all of our media go through our Instagram channel. Um, there's been a few little edits and things like that of our Namibian trip we've put up on there. Um, but next week, I believe, with Liam, just before we head over to Utah for my elk hunt, we're going to um, dig in and get a bit more of that footage out there for you guys to check out. Tell us that one about you've got an upcoming trip to the States, have you, hunting, or I more do, for products? Or... This trip I leave on the 7th of November, I believe, um, and I'm heading over to Utah to hunt the Wasatch Front. So earlier in the year, I was over there for the Western Hunting Convention, Um and there was a raffle going on, and I remember running into Adam Greentree over there, and he said, "Hey, dude, have you put in for these? Put in for the raffle?" And basically, what the uh, what the raffle consisted of was one limited entry tag of each species or draw variant they had in the state. So basically, you you could put in for this raffle, and potentially you could win a moose hunt or anything anything like that. So I was like, okay, that's probably worth doing. Went over to the booth, ended up spending $550 and bought a ticket for every single animal they had in the draw. Uh, a couple of weeks later, I had a few of the guys um, message me saying, hey, dude, you drew a limited entry uh, elk tag in the Wasatch. So basically what I've got is a tag in which I believe they only give out 120 for late season in the Wasatch front. So that hunt, for those of you who don't know, it's in the unit called the Wasatch Mountains, which is steep and unforgiving and going to be very cold and covered in snow but also has very good potential for 340 350 360 plus bull elk um so we're going to go in i've got a few spots that i've sort of researched speaking with people we're going to go in backpacking and the season is eight days only so we've got eight days to get it done and in that time i think we're going to basically it's going to be winter over there or coming into winter so a lot of snow which will push the bulls down out of out of the mountains, down onto the lower country, um, chasing feed as it's just been their rut. So all the bulls are just recovering post-rut. So basically I think what that hunt's going to consist of, it's going to be a lot of glassing, um, getting into basins, finding a target bull and going after him from there. But it's something very different for me. I'm very excited to get over and I'm going into it with no expectations and I'll be happy to come home empty-handed as well just to have the experience under my belt, I guess. All I can say is I'm pretty jealous, mate. I'm pretty jealous. Someone has to do it. Someone <laughs> I was going to say, I might have to get into uh, making broadheads. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not really, but, you know, I mean, I get, I've got to get into a business so I can get these, uh, you know, more hunting opportunities, be my own boss and do my own thing. Sounds like, the, I guess, the prime thing to do, mate. What's it like hunting? You've hunted here, obviously. You've hunted overseas. What's it like compared, you know, between the two? For myself, I've only ever hunted in Australia and Namibia for overseas countries. I've got a trip to do New Zealand planned in December. But I would compare the hunting in Namibia and the country itself very similar to Australia. Um, we're not faced with as much regulation, um, licenses, tags, things like that. 
Whereas America, it, it's a very highly regulated but also very well-run system over there with their licensing, their tags, their draws. So I can't really pass comment on the American side of it until I've done it. Um, I know they, they manage their herds really well. They've got ballot systems into good units and things like that. And that's, that's an initiative I'd like to see brought over into Australia. But with our hunting demographic being so small, I think it's going to be a very long process before something like that happens. Yeah, they certainly have a good system overseas and the way they do things and their bigger animal herd management, quite good. Let's talk about bows, man, because that's important. People are getting into them. They, what bow do you shoot? I currently shoot a Hoyt RX-1 in 82-pound at 29.5-inch draw. So basically the hand of God when it releases an arrow. What's the what's the tech? I speak to a lot of people about this before. Just obviously when I'm talking to bow hunters and that, and the difference in technology over the years between you know different bows that have come onto the market. Some have done really well. Obviously, some have failed. How as far as technology come over the years with bows? Technology in the past ten years with bows has come a super long way. Uh, the bows of ten years ago compared to now are chalk and cheese. So. But what I tell people now is in, in this day and age, particularly in the last four or five years, if you buy a new release bow, top of the line from any of the main brands, you cannot go wrong. There's no such thing as a bad bow. I, I've tried a few different brands lately, but what I've gravitated towards shooting a Hoyt at the moment is the reliability of it. That, for me, is more important than the last 3% of some specs that you might get from another bow. I prefer that reliability of a Hoyt. Is there a reason, though, why, say, even your more expensive bows, what things can go wrong in a bow, in essence, I guess is what I'm asking? The main things that can go wrong with bows, some brands are renowned or very, very known for having the limbs fail. The limbs, the carbon limbs will delaminate or fail altogether. So, And where that comes from is they're milking that last 3 to 5% of speed or efficiency out of those limbs whereas the other brands opt on the slightly safer and might be slightly slower, and they're opting on that safer side. It'd be, it'd be like comparing a Toyota Land Cruiser to a Ferrari, I guess. One's built for reliability, one's built for speed. What happens if they delaminate? Does that mean the, you, you've got to get a new bow, or what happens with that? That, means, that, that means you're in for a really bad time. Uh, yeah, so basically, <laughs> that means... Get your checkbook you, out again. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. So um, if you do your limbs you're out of action for a while. And me being a left-hander, left-handed bows aren't something that archery stores stock as a rule of thumb. So um, it happened to me um, with one of my older bows. I remember it was the day before I was going hunting red deer for the rut for two weeks. And I went to one of my blocks. I just went for a quick hunt, went to draw back on a boar and I heard snap. And a, a component of the cam snapped on me. And I was near in tears because I thought, this is it. I'm not hunting for the rut now. No one's going to have parts for this. Luckily, I was able to source parts for it. But if you're, a lot of guys will only have one bow. It's not like a rifle where you might have two or three. If your one bow fails, you can potentially be out for six weeks, which for me is a long time not to hunt. So going back to that reliability thing, I need something that I know that I can just treat like shit and is not going to break on me. But also it's going to perform at that top level that I needed as well. Yeah. So explain that delamination. What is it? Is it top and bottom of the bow? Like, just explain that. I'm not sure what that means. So, um, sorry if I'm going too technical. No, there, no, it's all right. This is good for the people that will listen. Basically, 
I would say 90% of bow limbs are made in this manner, which is layers of carbon. So there might be 15 or 16 layers of carbon, which are glued together. I've seen this process in the Hoyt factory. So they're glued together and then shaped into the shape of the limb. So it's lots of thin strips of carbon glued and pressed together into the shape of the limb. So if, you, if they start splitting apart and delaminating, obviously it loses all its gotcha, strength and yep. it, will event, it will eventually snap. Or Obviously, it generally doesn't get to the stage of actually totally snapping, but you'll have your limb half hanging there and it's very visible that if you shoot that again, it's going to blow up on you. What's the what's the lifetime you can get out of a bow? Like how long is the life of a bow generally? I've got a I've got one of my father's bows he had as a kid, um, sitting in the shed at the moment, and it's a, one of the very early Fred Bear compounds. And I've shot it, and it hasn't it didn't blow up on me. This was a couple of weeks ago, but it the only thing that's going to fail on a bow essentially is the strings. If you replace the strings every few years, you you could potentially have a bow that would last for fifteen or twenty years. Um, it's, yeah, general wear and tear on strings and things like that is the main factor that's going to have a bow fail on you. Is string replacement easy to do yourself or you've got to get someone to do it? I wouldn't recommend trying serving your own strings and things like that. All archery stores will do strings for you. So they'll either have a string maker in store or you can order in a custom string from online and, and they'll fit it and then go through and basically retune the bow because the, you can put a string on, but it's got to be at perfect measurements to have that bow operating at its optimum capacity, I guess. So you'll put the string on and then the next part of it, which is this again, going back to people starting out, how do I, I've just got a bow. How do I know if it's tuned? Things like that. Um, that's something for your archery store to help you out with. Yeah, I can imagine there's probably a lot of things there. Like when looking at a bow, like I would look at it and probably say, yeah, that looks pretty good and it looks like it's working, but there could be this wrong with it. Strings aren't right. This, you know, It could be a multitude of different problems I wouldn't know looking at it. So I guess it's probably hard for you know new bow hunters wanting to get into it without sort of knowing you know, the industry, the te- knowing, the knowing the products. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, 100%. Um, and that's one thing, like, I'm not trying to be critical here in saying this. Um, it's all right, mate. You can do say whatever you like on this show. Well, we. Well, a lot of archery stores very good at setting up bows, um, very good at tuning, very good at all that sort of stuff. But as far as hardcore bow hunters working in archery stores in the country, there isn't too many. Um, and again, I'm not trying to be critical of people, but one person recommending a product based on experience versus one person recommending a product based on theory are two very different things in my mind. Um, and, and you see a lot of that, like, I wonder why there's too. not a lot of people, I guess. I mean, I guess it is the retail sector. Maybe it's pay. Maybe there's a few other issues there, but it's probably hard to get, you know, your more experienced guys into those roles. Um, I'm going to say one being location. Most major, most archery, major archery stores are located, and I'm just generalizing here, located in city centers and things like that. You want to be a hardcore bow hunter, you don't generally live in the middle of Sydney or yes. Brisbane or Melbourne. True, very true. What's the optimal? We'll talk about draw weight before. What's the optimal draw weight? Is there an optimal one for Australian game? There's no such thing as too much poundage, in my opinion. But I also say to people, don't over, don't shoot too much. You need to be able to handle the poundage and shoot what you can. Um, so you get a lot of guys, and you see them. They'll be drawing back and struggling and struggling to shoot their seventy-five or eighty-pound bow, so they can say, "Oh, I shoot an eighty-pound bow," when in actual fact, they're becoming inaccurate, inefficient, and basically disadvantaging themselves where they could be shooting a 65-pound bow, shooting accurately, shooting it comfortably, and putting the arrow where it needs to go, which is more important than having a faster arrow. So I say shoot as much as you can comfortably. 
Nick, we're talking about uh, gear necessary to go bow hunting. What's, in your opinion, some of the most equipment that you think is necessary to get out there when either experienced or new beginner bow hunters need to get out there? Need to get out there? Um, what I would say the best um, bit of advice I can give is invest in a good set of binoculars, a good set of optics out there in the field. They are going to help you more than you can ever imagine first getting into bow hunting. I remember when I started out and I had just a cheap, shitty pair of binoculars and you slowly upgrade to some high-end stuff. Having a good pair of optics allows you to obviously find animals, identify what they are, identify their potential as a trophy or meat animal or what be it. And then also going down the optic line is a rangefinder. A rangefinder is a must-have for anyone starting bow hunting. It takes the guesswork out of it. And it gives you no excuse to miss a shot due to misjudging a distance. So a rangefinder, in my opinion, is just – it's a non-negotiable, you know what I mean? You owe it to the animals to make that shot perfect every single time. So rangefinder and optics, two big things that I'd recommend that you sort of can't go past in the beginning. What, uh, what binos do you use? Any recommendations for people? I personally um, – I've got a set of Vortex uh, Razor binoculars which are really good and i also run a vortex razor spotting scope um the spotting scope that i run is an 11 to 33 so for a spotting scope if you guys know about it it's rather small but why i like that is i can keep it in my pack for every hunt i do so as opposed to having a big larger spotting scope like a, a 48 power or a 60 power which is really heavy and cumbers cumbersome mine's light it stays in my pack all the time if i see see a boar on a ridge and I'm not sure whether he's a shooter or not. I'll just rip out the spotting scope, go, yep, he's got lip curl. No, he doesn't, and make my decision based on that. So it's a convenient thing for me, having a smaller spotting scope and a weight thing, um, as opposed to having that extra ability to see further, I guess. You were talking about the range finders as well. I find that interesting. I've got one as well, and they definitely do come in handy, don't they? Because judging distance, I've looked at things and I thought, oh, yeah, that's about you know 80 metres. And then when I've actually looked at it, it's like 130 metres or 125. Yeah. And I guess with a, being a bow hunter, having the most humane kill possible, it's definitely good to have one of those at your disposal. 100%, and especially when two metres can mean the difference between two inches or three inches inches on a shot, you know. Like, we're not supercomputers. You can get good at judging distances. You have that range finder, and it, it also comes in with the angle compensation. If you're shooting at steep angles uphill or downhill, it's only the, ho- the distance in front of you, your horizontal distance you shoot at. You could have a shot that's at uh, 80 degrees down, and the animal's 100 metres away, and you'll click your rangefinder and it'll say 10 metres because that horizontal distance is only 10 metres. So it becomes particularly important when you have shots at steep angles, high or low. That's, that's where a lot of people come unstuck. The animal might be 50 metres away, but you, you actually have to shoot it at 30 with your 30 pin due to that horizontal distance. It, it's interesting. I bought a, or I got one given to me actually, a Bushnell Trophy Extreme, I think it is, about four or $500 you know, rangefinder. And my mate was out there on our last trip and he pulled out the old Audi special, the Maganon rangefinder. And he goes, oh, no, this is pretty good. And I'm thinking, uh, okay, well, give it to me. Let me have a look. And honestly, at about, I think it was about 450, 500 meters, his one was actually rangefinding and finding the distance and accurately quicker than mine was. And there was about a $300 price difference. I couldn't believe it. I, I, can't, vouch yeah, okay. for, like, I can't vouch for long, longevity in those sort of cheaper products. But when it was actually 
you know, I was there. I said, use mine. He goes, I can't get it to, to range properly. I said, yeah, I'm trying to find a spot to range on a specific, you know, point. And it, his was just range finding straight away. Honestly, I couldn't believe it and accurately as well because when I finally got mine to work, it was actually working pretty well. Yeah, okay. I, I guess longevity um, of your product might come down to it in that scenario. But again, if something works and you can trust it, it works. Mate, tell us about stalking. Now, this is one, I guess, aspect of bow hunting, which is really, really important. And I think I've seen some of your videos on Instagram and getting in close. I've got to respect that. It's definitely a skill. So how does one become a good stalker and getting in on game? I've been out hunting deer in areas where, yes, I guess it's different to animals that have been shot at before or in those areas where people can shoot them, you know, state forest, those types of things here in New South Wales. But how do you get in close to an animal? Because I've had deer and, you, and I heard you mention fallow before, actually. I've I've, I've walked up on deer at 600 metres, for an example, and I'm, I'm walking along the edge of a tree line very slowly, and all of a sudden their heads just go, boop, and they, they turn around and look at me. I was behind trees. I'm not moving quickly. I'm doing one step every you know, two to three to four seconds, and they just, they just know I'm there. Is fallow different to other types of game, and how does one become a better stalker? Um, one thing I'll say with stalking, it's a very experience-based and acquired skill. It's not something that you can just read about and then become good at. Um, it all comes down to knowing animal behaviour, learning their habits and patterns. So reading an animal's body language is probably more important than your actual stalking ability and ability to stay concealed and quiet itself. If you can look at an animal and know it's fully relaxed, not alert, it's not listening, you can get away with a lot more noise than whereas if the animals... If you can look at that animal and go, I can tell from its body position, particularly with a boar, because I know those so well, when their tails straighten out and their ears straighten out, they'll be down feeding and all of a sudden they'll just pause with their head still there, but you'll notice their ears will flare out. That's them going on to high alert. And to me, that means stop, don't move, give it a minute. Whereas to other people, it just looks like the pig's just still there, got its head in the ground feeding. It'll still be feeding, but its ears will be straight and its tail will be dead still. So learning animal behaviour is your biggest friend when it comes to getting in close to animals. And another thing with that is being able to learn the wind. So obviously yourself, you know, if an animal yeah. smells you, it's not going to hang around for much longer. Um, there was a good uh, podcast, I think it was Hunting Camp Down Under with Craig Hagels and Toby Hines, and they spoke about wind thermals. So that's, for some people, that's a very foreign concept, but it's something that can benefit you as a hunter to know. Um the wind might be going a certain direction in a valley, but particularly in the mountains, there's little valleys and draws and gullies, and the wind will be going left, right, up and down and things like that. So it's something I probably won't touch on now because it's too big of a subject, but <laughs> learn the wind and learn to be able to read the wind. That's that's also very important because anyone wanting to start out into bow hunting, if an animal smells you, it won't second guess its nose. It will be out of there. You might be able to get an animal to have a look at you, and it might go, oh, there's something over there. I can sense danger, but I can't make it out and go back to feeding. You might get a second chance there. You get no second chances with the wind. So it pays to be more critical of the wind than your stalking is, is my advice to people starting out. Obviously, a lot of people have a lot of different styles and techniques, but I personally like having a little wind puffer in my bag, which I fill with corn flour. Um, Aiden Doomsis told me about this one, and... You know the little travel shampoo bottles you can get from like a Kathmandu store or something like that? Yep, you come yep. across those? Yep, yeah, yeah. Fill one, fill one of those up with a bit of corn flour and you've got yourself a wind checker. 
I think I bought uh, one for like twenty dollars off the internet. It's like a you yeah, flip up the yep. top of it and you puff it, and you can just put talcum powder or something similar in there. I guess maybe not talcum powder because it might smell. I'm not sure, but I'm sure I'll find it on the but internet. Again, looking about it, if it smells, they're going to smell you holding it anyway. That's, That's what true, I tell people true, as well. Yeah, so you're right, because I know all the people say I oh, don't use this. They might smell. It. I'm thinking, well, yeah, you're right. If it's going that way anyway, they're probably going to yeah, smell it anyway. Right. Yeah, they're going to smell the person holding it. So, yeah. Mate, what factors? How do you, when you're tackling a stalk, what factors go into it? Except other than the wind, what factors go into good stalk? <sighs> I, I guess it comes down to, and I'll reference back to hunting boars again, mountain boars in particular, which is what I hunt. Uh, they're a very erratic animal. They don't like sitting still, and they don't like being out in the open. So if you come across a boar, it's either going to be early in the morning and he's heading back to his bedding area, or it's late afternoon and he's coming out of thick scrub to start feeding for the evening. So a lot of times there's a sense of urgency there for me. I've got to get in and follow up on him before he's out of my reach. Um, So I try and make it faster rather than slower with boars. So without having seen it, boars will pretty much almost feed at a canter. They just will go to here, feed for three seconds, go to here, feed, move, keep moving on. So I try and obviously a lot of the times you'll be behind them. When their head's down, feeding, digging up, you'll try and cover as much ground as possible. When they're moving in, you'll stop. Um, But it's a question that's like how to be good at bow hunting. It's so so broad and it's very specific to a lot of factors. Um, But just obviously – You've just got to pay attention to what you're doing and I'll just go off topic a little bit here. A lot of the times I bugger up stalks or things like that or make a bad decision is when I'm exhausted. I might see a boar and have to charge up a massive hill to get there before last light and I'll be puffed and exhausted and not thinking straight. That's where I make my mistakes a lot of the time and what I try and tell myself is slow down and talk myself through that process if that makes sense. Try and Speak to yourself and go, okay, I'm doing this. Yes, that makes sense. Okay, I'm doing this. Okay, should I go there? No, I should wait. Um, make calculated decisions, not rush decisions. And obviously, the more you do it and the more you get around those animals and learn their behaviours, you're going to be able to make those decisions better and faster. Let me extend that question, though, because I thought this was interesting as well. So I've noticed in a lot of, I've watched a lot of videos on YouTube, people are pig hunting for an example. They don't have, it's what I've seen and people have told me, I guess as well, I've actually surprised of all the game, I've never actually shot a pig. But anyway, they don't have the best eyesight from what I'm seeing where deer are the complete opposite. They're like the all round package of smell, hearing, the whole bit and their eyesight. Uh, Is there a different way you would attack, say, uh, stalking in on a boar as opposed to stalking on on a deer or or goats? Yeah, so I find it um, a little bit funny, that question there. You said, obviously, deer are the complete package. They've got eyesight, they've got hearing, things like that. Um, I'll keep referencing back to boars because that's what I know so well. Pigs, yes, eyesight. Their eyesight is not as good, and that's a known fact. Um, But in a big old mature boar, what this will do is if he catches a bit of movement, say say you're 50 yards away and he might sort of catch you moving out behind a bush or something, he'll see that bit of movement there. But because their eyesight is so bad, they don't have the ability to investigate and find out what it is. So he will, by default, just start moving off. He'll go, I don't know what that is. I don't have the ability to pinpoint what it is. I'm just going to move off anyway. So 
a lot of the times they have bad eyesight, yes, but you don't get a second chance. You know yourself when you said you're walking along that tree line, next thing, bang, the deer are looking at you. They're looking at you to identify what the, what they are. They're a little bit more curious in nature. They'll actually identify what is there, then move off. A pig will just go, oh, I think there's something there. I'm going to move off. So I don't treat a pig any different to a deer in the fact that if you get caught moving, he's most likely gone. But if you are still with a pig, you are a lot lot more likely to get away with it. He might look past you. He, you might be 50 yards away kneeling down in front of a bush. And if you're not moving, he will look past you most of the time. Whereas with a deer who have better eyesight, they'll be able to pick a stationary object a lot better than a pig, for example. Does that make sense? It's definitely interesting when they, they spook you, isn't it? Like I've sat in areas like I've been, say, on property, and I'll say under a tree, and it's it's dark. You almost can't see me. It's either morning or night. Deer have literally come out at me in, in say, 100, 150 metres away, sometimes even closer, and they've come out to feed, you know, put their head down. They're looking around. Everything seems fine. They seem calm and collected. And then all of a sudden they look up and they're looking around like every way they can look, they're looking. And they sort of, you know, they spring off on their step and they're looking around again. I'm thinking, well, no, my scent is going that way. I'm literally sitting down. All I've done is I might have sort of just quickly just rolled forward onto the gun sort of thing on the ground. So this is what I've been finding is working for me, sort of sitting and waiting, looking at certain areas, waiting for deer to pass through. And all of a sudden, they do have that curiosity. They do either stop or they've gone to move off on me. And they're not sort of, they figure something's not there, but they're not 100% sure, but something's definitely not right. So they've moved off a bit to sort of just a little bit of a trot. And I've sort of made a noise. And then they just bang, their head just snaps and looks, gives me about two to three seconds, four seconds if I'm lucky. And then hopefully you make it happen before, you know, they obviously start moving off from there and start bolting. (laughs) Yeah, they've definitely got that little bit of a curious side in them. Um, And that's how often with a rifle a lot of big red stags will also get shot um you might be calling your big stag in in the rut and he might might make your outline or something at at 30 yards coming in hot he'll run to 50 or 60 stop and turn and look at you for a couple of seconds and they say that's where a lot of big stags that's where they got shot at that second look back you know what i mean they'll give you that bit of curiosity it depends i guess if you have that open area too some of the places i hunt i see whether it's you know private property are still fairly i won't say thick but you've only really got that 100 meters maybe to 120 at best sometimes in those specific areas but they're mate hunting's a funny game isn't it with these types of animals and i've learned even just deer just watching them sitting and waiting how they how they react to certain things and when that like that day that that happened i'm like how did they know? Like they just knew something was up, even though my win uh, was in the was completely in the opposite direction. So it was fantastic. And I'm like, how did they know? I, all I yeah. did was roll over. There was no noise I, in this in this one of those one of the situations. I was in a, a state forest actually, and I had pine needles under me. And I'm thinking, there's no way they could have heard me. At one particular stage, one of them at a, at a different time. This was uh, yeah, probably the year before. Literally just snapped its head and looked right in my direction. I'm thinking, I didn't even move. I did not even move. And yeah. I, I, I still learning you're still learning about the animals and and seeing them out in the open i think is a good way to to learn about these animals and their movements looking for outdoor equipment for your next adventure at aussie outdoor gear you can find cooking equipment camo clothing for kids backpacks camo accessories and much more we cater for your hunting fishing camping hiking and other outdoor pursuits with our unique product range AussieOutdoorGear.com.au Quality gear at affordable prices. 100%. And, and the best way to be a good hunter is by getting out in the field and 
doing more hunting and being amongst the animals that you wish to target, you know. Um, like I, I'm going on this trip to Utah in about 10 days' time and the last few days before I'm leaving, I'm not going and pounding a target. I'm going into the mountains and going hunting um, just to get that, that hunting instinct back again, I guess, if that makes sense, you know. Like you can be the best shot in the world on a, on a piece of paper or a target back at home, but it's as you would know yourself, it's a total different ball game to actually executing that stalk and that shot in the field. Um, so I'd rather be okay at a target, but perfect when I'm out hunting, doing everything right, not not getting buck fever, I guess, not getting overly excited when I'm around big animals, staying calm, going through my process and being able to execute that cleanly. That's, that's a big thing. And I, I stress that to people. If you want to get good at hunting, get out in the field, be amongst the animals you want to hunt, learn and observe. I can imagine bow hunting's quite. I've been frustrated with a rifle, let alone, <laughs> and and that's why I adopted the, especially on areas that have been hunted quite frequently. Especially it's different if you're on private property. Sometimes it's different. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes I've been on private. The animals are still very spooky. Sometimes they're not. Sometimes I mean, honestly, so I've had goats where sometimes <laughs> I've literally just walked up on them. I've literally parked my car. They're looking at you there, and, and I, I just walk in, stalking slowly. I think they know I'm here. Obviously, I just pulled my car up. And I've had a chance to shoot them and take meat. It's just, but I've had other goats in other properties where even the first sign of hearing something, they're gone. I've charged up over the hill. I'm not the fittest guy. So I've come up over the hill and then I've just, I can see the ass end of them going up over another hill. And I'm like, oh, this is not working out for me, is it? And a lot of that comes down to hunting pressure, you know. Um, the more that an animal gets hunted, obviously, the wary it's going to be and the less you're going to get away with. So on, on some places I've hunted, I've had planes fly over. And next thing, a boar's taken off, you know. So um, it, it makes it hard, but it's just another another one of them challenges you got to overcome. So, um, but with hunting with a bow, in, for myself, I accept that I'm not going to shoot something every time I go out. It's it's not my goal. It's not what I need to do. My my goal with bow hunting is I want to set out. Um, I want to go find a big boar. I want to go target him, and it might take me three, four, five trips. But that's what I want to go out to do. I'll. I'll pass up young boars, 50 kilos, young two, three-year-old models because I want to go out. I'll get more fulfillment from the challenge of hunting that older, wiser boar that might only come out 10 minutes before the sun goes down or 10 minutes after sunup as opposed to shooting three young boars that I could walk past every time and do. So for me, it's more the process of learning an animal's habits, patterning them um, and executing my knowledge to get in range of that animal that that's what it's about for me it's not um and obviously for a lot of other people it's not i don't have to kill something every time i go out um it's not like fishing you know you sort of almost expect to catch something every time you go whereas with this it's a process and a culmination of everything together that when it does finally work the sense of satisfaction i get from that is yeah it's indescribable. It's interesting, isn't it, when you start shooting animals and people that knew me on the show that have been listening for a long time. You know, I spent literally, mate, five years, you know, waiting to get my first deer. And people said, a lot of people, and I know friends that have, well, sort of friends, not not so much now, but they've, you know, end up giving up on their hunting. And I said, I can't, I can't give up. I've even t- taken friends hunting with me, you know, getting new people into, into the sport. And literally the first, <laughs> it makes me laugh now that I think about it because I've got a bunch of deer since then. But when I've taken them out that on their first trip they literally get deer and I'm like man I can't believe 
this is your first trip out and you've got deer. I've been doing this five years. Like, man, this just doesn't happen. And then ever since I got my first deer, I don't know if it's just, you know, a hoodoo curse, so to speak, but literally every time since then, I've got a deer every time I've gone out. And like, I don't expect to get one every time I've gone out. I don't get to go out all that often, you know, four or five times a year sort of thing. And I sort of like to take meat every time I go out if I get the opportunity. But it's just, it's crazy how things work out. It's it's that experience you're building on. And like I said, um, getting out there amongst it, once you do it, I guess you subconsciously know, you know what to do more so. So success builds success. You know, it's, a, it's that momentum thing. Once you get one, the next one's not as hard. Um, so, yeah, I, I definitely find that um, particularly, like I said, it'll come into winter and I'll go, okay, it's time to start hunting boars. You might struggle for a few trips, then you'll get your mojo. And then next thing, it's like, okay, I'm starting to shoot one every time I go out. Like, this is working. I'm doing the right things. And and that that's what I was harping on before. The more time you spend out there, the better you get at the sport. You know what I mean? It's it's one of those things. It's, it's very instinctual, the whole hunting side of things. It's hard to put into words. I guess getting out a lot too, isn't it? That's the main thing. Like you said, you know, like me, I live in Sydney. I've got to get out of this hellhole and move somewhere where there's more hunting opportunities. And I think the more opportunities you have, the better you'll become. Oh, 100%. And... The, the more hunting you do, the, it just feels more natural, you know, like it's, you become more of a predator. Um, and yeah, I guess for me, like I notice, um, like generally I'll hunt during the winter months and the cooler months, I'll hunt one to two days every single week. Um, and I'll notice if I miss a few weeks, not only on my fitness and things like that, but I'll make silly decisions in stalks. I won't do things quite as efficiently. Um, and then when I start going again, it's just, it's second nature to me. I don't even need to think about it. I just do it. Um, so yeah, time in the field, super, super important. Mate, I'd love to have a place where, and obviously living in Sydney, you just don't get it. You're at least a couple of hours away where you can sort of just, you know, go for a hunt in the afternoon or on a weekend and come back. I mean, that'd be the ultimate, wouldn't it? Well, yeah, well, it's a hard thing for a lot of people. Um, and I guess you've got to weigh up. What do you want in your life? Do you want your family life in town, in the cities, things like that? Do you have a job there? Um, and and I, I consider this like bow hunting as a lifestyle. It's not a hobby. So um, it's, it's definitely a very hard activity to go and do every week. Um, like for me, if I go hunting, I'll have to get in the car and drive from two to three hours um, to go hunting. And if I do that for a day trip, that's six hours of driving for one day's hunting. It's, it's a 24-hour day. That's a big investment out of, out of, out of your life to do. Um, particularly for people with families and kids and um, jobs and things like that. So it's it's definitely a very hard sport to break into as well with those limitation factors, you know. Like you being from Sydney, it's harder for me, harder for you to go hunting than me being from the Hunter Valley. And then you might have someone who lives in Scone and can literally drive 10 minutes and go for a hunt after work. Um, and add a girlfriend in there, your life's over. <laughs> yeah, pr- pretty much. And you're broke. Exactly. So they're not happy with both. You're broke and, you know, she won't let you go hunting. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Oh, man, it's funny. Mate, just I, I know this is probably you're going to say no to this, but I was just because it's not on your website. But when people want to become a better bow hunter, and we're talking about broadheads before we finish off, how do people practice? You don't, do people still like, sorry, I'm a bit naive on this. So I don't know a lot about bow hunting, but obviously is there target heads or something? Do you sell those or no? People can just go to their local, you know, bow hunting shop and pick up those if they want to. Because how does someone learn on, say, a 150 grain broadhead compared to, say, a target arrow? Does that exist? Is that how it works? Or Okay, so pretty well, um, I'll run you through my personal um, regime of how I practice. And for me personally, I will only practice with my broadheads in my target. 
in the field, you're only going to hunt with a broadhead. So in my opinion, if something's wrong, I want to know it's wrong. So I'll have my target and I'll, pardon me, I'll accept the fact that shooting broadheads is going to chew my target out. Um, it's not going to last as long, but I'm practicing with, with what I use. But for a normal person, basically all I would recommend is that they uh, say they're shooting 125 grain broadhead, just simply acquire 125 grain field, field tips and shoot with those. Um, obviously, when we're getting a bit more into the, the, the tuning side of things, um, some broadheads may fly, may fly a little bit different to a field point, um, but that's something we call broadhead tuning. So that's a little bit more technical, but in essence, a screw-on target tip is very simple to acquire. All your archery, archery stores have them, and they're probably one of the most common things stocked in a store. So, And, and your broadheads too, tip, they screw on as well, or how does that work? Yeah, so all broadheads just feature an 832 thread. Um, gotcha. Basically, 99% of broadheads are all the same thread pattern and will fit into 99% of arrows. Basically, you can't buy something you couldn't screw into an arrow, essentially, in a store. Is there any better, and I hope my terminology is right, the shaft, I guess you might call it, is that, uh, is that different from specific models? Are there any better ones than other ones? or Very much so. So for me, what I look for, an arrow shaft when it's thinner, will penetrate far more. So the benchmark for shafts at the moment is four millimetre diameter, okay? So a four millimetre shaft compared to a six millimetre shaft, if you can imagine that going into a target or an animal, if that shaft's only four four millimetres compared to six millimetres, it's got a lot less resistance and drag on it, which is going to reduce its penetration. So if you shoot a thinner arrow shaft, it's going to equate to a lot more penetration in the long run. But with that... Obviously, you go to a thinner arrow shaft, it gets a lot more expensive and it becomes a dollars and cents game for a lot of people. Do I want to spend $10 on an arrow shaft? Do I want to spend $20? Do I want to spend $30 on an arrow shaft? Um, they can get pretty expensive. But what I try and say to people is you go bow hunting, you're not going to be harvesting a heap of animals. Like for me, if I harvest one animal over a weekend, I've had a successful weekend. I'm happy that I've just I, – I, I don't mind that I might have thrown away a $50 arrow and not found it after I've got a pass-through. In essence, I've completed what I've set out to do, and if I've got to sacrifice that arrow, so be it. Um, I, see, I see a lot of guys out there. They'll have a $100,000 Land Cruiser. They'll have a $3,000 bow. All the gear, it'll cost them a couple hundred dollars every weekend to go, go to their spot, food, whatever, but they'll want to skimp on arrows and broadheads. And it, it doesn't compute with me, that side of things. So I always say to people, spend the money on the things that do the job for you. The broadhead for one, and then the arrow for two. Mate, website, emails, where do they go to uh, purchase some of your products? Yeah, website. So if you want to want to check us out online, it's just www.ozcutbroadheads.com. Um, and basically on every social media platform you can find, particularly Instagram and Facebook. So if you want to shoot us an email through the website, get on the Instagram, shoot us a message. Always happy to have a chat. And just for the guys out there who are listening, wanting to get into bow hunting, have some questions they want to ask, jump on the Instagram, jump through the jump through the website, shoot us a message. I'm, I'm happy to help anyone out who's starting out and put them on the right foot. I'd rather see people doing going down the right path, having the right questions answered, um, as opposed to trying to figure out themselves making mistakes and costing themselves money they don't need to. So by all means, if you want to get in touch, do. I'm happy to help out. And I was just on his website. I was clicking about while we're uh, 
just looking at some of your products. That's a pretty well-made website. I like your website. It's pretty good. It's, got, it's pretty easy to, to navigate, guys, so you can jump on there. Mate, to finish off, if someone wants to – oh, no, sorry. Actually, tell us a story, mate. That's the final thing to finish off. We always like to finish off with a story, so I'm not sure if you've maybe got one from your African trip or maybe something in general that you re- remember, say, over the last couple of years as a – a great day. Just a bit of a recount. Yeah, yeah okay. of Nick Morton's um, life, something that you can – but when we tell the story, I like it in depth, you know, time of year, everything. Just go, we want to feel like we're there. Yeah, okay. So oh, I think the red stag I shot from this year's rut, um, I shot a good 6-6 six, six red stag after three of the hardest hunting weeks of my life. Um, so I'll probably pretty well go through and give a bit recap of that. So I hunted with Paul and Liam Woods, who are good friends of mine, um, up in the Hunter Valley, and we were specifically after a good red stag. Um, it was coming up into the rut, and we'd, we'd had a discussion that both Liam and Paul had shot stags the years prior. I, I hadn't. I hadn't shot a red stag up until this point. So one of the main priorities initially was for me to try and get a good stag on the ground. So we went into the rut with the notion that we we weren't going to shoot a young deer. We weren't going to shoot four fours. We weren't going to shoot a small four. Uh, sorry, a five five. We wanted a big five five or better. So we went in chasing a big mature stag. Um, and earlier on through this year and last year, as you know, we had a had a drought. So what we found was the first week of, uh, sorry, it was the last week of March, which is typically the best time for the really mature stags, where you might get a chance at a really old stag. That first week, we basically had no rutting activity. We heard about three roars for the whole week, and we really, really struggled. Uh, we hunted hard every single day for five days, sun up till sundown, and we're doing about 25 to 30 kilometres each day on foot in the mountains, chasing these stags around. Um, wow. So that, that first week was a bit of throwaway. I had a few close calls. I had three threes come in. We had a young four five come into bow range. Um, and laid eyes on a big stag once, and he was a 6 by 8 14 point, and he was a giant. Um, the next week went by, um, so I worked three days in between, the Friday, Saturday, Sunday. We went back and started hunting again on the Monday. Um, basically, the action was again the same, basically null and void. Um, the hinds were in very poor condition, which therefore they weren't cycling, which therefore the stags weren't rutting. But we were getting onto almost every day this big 6'8", um, this particular stag. There was two hunting parties, and say in the morning me and Liam would go out, we'd get onto him in one part of the property, and Paul and the other hunting party would go out in the afternoon and they'd get onto him about five kilometres away. Like He was covering a lot of ground. He wasn't staying in the one spot. He was pushing his hinds all around the mountainside. And but that week went past and we had about six opportunities between the two of us on, on that particular stag, but just couldn't capitalise on it. Um, I, I had one time he walked across at 45 yards in between an opening, but just didn't stop for me to get a shot. Um, I had him at 30 yards on the other side of the bush with him roaring, but he wouldn't come around to the hind call. He just, he had a force field around him. And anyway, that week went past. I had, again, on the last afternoon, a 4-5 at like 12 yards on the last afternoon and still opted to pass him up. And that was supposed to be the end of our hunt. We had two weeks planned, booked him with a property owner, um, and that was it. So that week went past, and I drove to work that night, which was a couple of hours away, worked the weekend. And I still remember I got home on Monday morning, and that was it. That was it for the hunting. I had to get back into the business and running things and whatnot. 
So I was like, okay, I'm not going to shoot a stag this year. I'll accept it. I'll wait another year. I've waited 25 years. What's another year going to be be on that? Um, and I get a phone call. It was quarter past seven in the morning, and it was Paul ringing me saying, hey, mate, you've got to get back up here. The stags are going off their heads. And I just got back home at midnight that night. I'd literally just woken up, and I was like, you're kidding me. He's like, nah, mate, I've managed to get us another two days booked in on the property, blah, blah, blah. He's like, you've got to come up. I am Bernard, and next thing you know, 15 minutes later, I'm back in the car driving straight back up the valley where I'd come from. So we hunted hard, um, got, got back onto him that afternoon, couldn't make anything happen. Then the next morning, it was our last morning, this was it. Um, I still remember we got onto him, the stag that we heard a basically, we heard a very a dull roar. So he was just going, Brr. And we went, no, this has got to be him. He's holding a lot of hinds in some thick timber, stalked up in there. Lo and behold, there he is, big 6'8", 150 yards away across the clearing, holding about 10 hinds. We tried calling him down, and he'd come about 80 yards from us and then turn around, which is obviously too far of a shot. We ended up calling in a young 3'3 stag that was hanging around trying to pinch one of his hinds. <clears throat> and that, that, that young 3'3 was at about – it come into about 10 yards from us. And I still remember thinking the big stag come down to have a look at that 3-3 coming in. And I thought to myself, that big stag's going to think that young stag has stole one of his hinds down here is going to come down to us in, from the opening. But he just wouldn't break from his 10 hinds that he had in the timber. So we devised a bit of a plan to take a very risky move, crawl and stalk around the open paddock and get up in the timber behind them. Somehow it worked. But as we're going up into the timber, I stepped on a tiny piece of wire that was in, just in the ground randomly and it made the smallest noise. And I think that stag's heard it because we were setting up to start hind calling him to bring him off his hinds. We're about 50 yards and he was just over a little rise in front of us. Next thing I can see the antlers coming to investigate the noise. And I've sort of stopped, drew back in anticipation of him coming over the hill and he stopped and pinned me and he was at 27 metres and I still remember this. He, was, he had one stump in front of his chest blocking his vitals. So I had no shot at all. I'm at full draw, 27 metres, and he was sort of looking at me really furiously, and he must have obviously picked my outline, and he's busted and broke cover, and he's run over the hill and collected a few of his hinds with him. They haven't seen what's going on, and they were on a clover patch, really content with feeding. So we've quickly stalked up over the hill and we can see the tips of his antlers and he's looking every which way, super alert, super alarmed, whereas the hinds were like, what's going on? Had no idea, like they hadn't seen us yet. Yeah. Managed to stalk in, get down, and I was, I was a blithering, shaking mess by this point. And we got in and I remember I drew back, stepped up over the rise at full draw and I was like, give me a range, give me a range. And Paul, Paul's clicking the range finder. He was shaking as much as I was and I just heard 41, 41. So this stag was super, super alert. Anyway, I've cut the shot and basically he has turned himself inside out and jumped the string on me and I've totally missed. Um, and I, to say I was devastated was an, was an understory. But Arrows missed and he's took off with his hinds over into the valley and a 1,000 miles an hour. Um, I was pretty gutted at that point. I was like, that's it. I've stuffed it. That was, that was the Is this going to win positive? <laughs> it, it, it does. I, I it hope does. it does. I was going to say, oh, no, I was getting, he's got the deer. He's got the deer. No, mate, this was the longest three weeks of my life. <laughs> um, and by this point, like, I was, I was mentally drained. I was physically exhausted. You know, we'd hunted hard every single day. I wanted this so badly. 
And anyway, we set up a plan for the afternoon where we thought he was going to be. Anyway, lo and behold, we somehow got onto him again that afternoon. Like, how has this happened? You know, we found him again. And he's making his way up this huge, big valley. And he's in thick timber, pushing his hinds up the timber, pushing higher and higher. And we, we were battling through the thick scrub, trying to catch up to him. And he was almost making ground on us, going up this big, thick mountain. Um, he's going up there, roaring occasionally, and we get a glimpse of him 200 metres away, but couldn't get any closer. And it was just like a game of cat and mouse going on and on as the afternoon went on. Yet then as we got a bit close to him, another stag at the top of the mountain started roaring. So if you can imagine, he's in front of us to the right, going off to the right. There's another stag above us to the left coming in to intercept him. So as we're making making our way up the mountain, we're getting closer and closer to him and closer and closer to this other stag. I hadn't laid, eye to, laid eyes on this stag, didn't know what it was. We're getting close and the stag to our left, which I've been talking about, He'd gone quiet for about 10 minutes and we're making our way up when all of a sudden we hear this roar no more than 60 metres in front of us in Thick Creek. And we're like, well, shit, there's a stag right there. Didn't know which one it was. So when you're calling reds in, you'll have your person calling set up about 20 or 30 metres behind you. So the deer will be focused on the noise behind you and is already looking past the bow hunter who's sitting there waiting in ambush, I guess, if that makes sense for the people listening. Definitely, definitely, yeah. So Paul's doubled back behind me. The wind's perfectly in my face, and I've seen a little game trail. And we're in a little narrow gully. It was about five metres wide in a steep ravine, so he's obviously going to come in on the creek floor where I am. I've seen a little game trail. I'm like, okay, he's going to come in on that. And I've positioned myself a couple metres off to the side of that. Um, basically knelt down in some bushes and wait, and Paul's let out a few calls, and sure enough, the stags let out a roar, and here he comes, making his way down. And I remember I seen his antlers just swaying left to right, left to right. And he got to about 30 yards, and I remember, okay, he's going to go behind this tree. So he's gone behind the tree, can't see him. I've come to full draw. And basically from then on in, he's trotted in, and he's come to 10 yards and stopped right behind a bush. And I'm thinking, no, no, no. I've got this big stag. He's, he's looking straight over the top of me. I can see him, and I'm there full draw, pin burning a hole on his chest through the tree. I'm thinking, please take another, please take another step, please take another step. And then he looks down at me and he's looking straight at me and I'm like, oh, no, he's, I'm busted, I'm busted. Anyway, at the right moment, somehow Paul lets out another hind call and he instantly puts his attention up, looks at that, takes another two steps and by then he was about at seven yards and I just let him have it. He was... Uh, quartering on, so I hit him through the point of the shoulder, uh, exited out the back of the ribs. He's run probably three metres past me, run 25 yards, stood for about three or four seconds and fell over. Um, and I've never been so relieved in my life that something was over. Um, it was <laughs> the most – I was so exhausted. I was over it, um, but I just persevered for the whole time. Um, and – the feeling of accomplishment. We literally sat for 20 minutes and didn't say a word. We were just, just so relieved and overcome with what had just happened. It was, it was, it was a really testing couple of weeks. But to get that really awesome stag on the ground is, it was something I'll never forget for the rest of my life. You know, um, and to do it with good mates as well. It was, it was an awesome experience. Mate, I've got to say, I've done 183 episodes, mate, and I've listened to a lot of stories. Probably the best one and the most descriptive one I've ever heard, and I'm not pulling your chain on that, man. I'm not pulling your chain. 
Thank you, sir. It was um, like I can still replay that in my head, that whole sequence going over and over again, you know. Um, but like just the sheer elation and exhaustion in my body for when I released that arrow and I knew it was on the money and it, all the work I'd put in for years prior, all the practice, everything had essentially boiled down to one moment. And in my mind, that's still my biggest achievement as a bow hunter is that free range 6-6 red stag that we worked so hard for. Would you like to advertise on one of the most tech-savvy mediums on the internet? Then why don't you advertise with us on the Australian Hunting Podcast? If you have a product or business that you would like to promote, then we would love to hear from you. Become one of our partner advertisers by calling Jason on 0425 881 967 or email australianhuntingpodcast at gmail.com. It's funny, isn't it, how some things can just come together and you have to work for it and other things come easy. Just You never know when it's going to happen, eh? But it's such a reward, isn't it, really, when you know, it exactly. pays and, off. And th- this particular stag, we hadn't laid eyes on him in three weeks, but we wouldn't have found him unless we were following up on that other one. On You know, like everything led to that situation happening. Was, so, was he bigger than that other one you originally did the stalk on no, that missed? No, no, he wasn't. So the original one we're after was a 14-point stag, a, a proper absolute giant. Um, but this one, still very good, very respectable, six by six. Um, everyone would shoot him all day of the week, I would say, pretty well. That means, oh, it gives you an opportunity, I guess, if you've still got access to wherever you're going to, you know, get the opportunity to hunt them again, I guess, at some stage. 100%, yeah. And a red stag for me was something because up until then I didn't have access to red deer, so I didn't have the opportunities to hunt them. And that was something, that was my number one animal. That was what I wanted. I, I wanted it so bad, you know, um, and working so hard for it and having it pay off like that. Yeah, I'm, I'm smiling sitting here talking to you about it, actually. No, so, I was actually, man, surprisingly, I'll be honest with you. I mean, I talked to a lot of people about, you know, stories and that. And, you know, a lot of them are good stories. But when I was sort of in there, I was, I was actually riveted to listen to it. It's very descriptive. So that's, that's pretty good. Lot. What are the population, anyway, of uh, talk about deer and that up in the Hunter Valley? The good populations of deer up there? What, a lot of fallow? Or? Yeah, lots of fallow, um, particularly up in that area. There's a lot of fallow deer but the population of red deer is a lot more scarce than that. Um, it's unfortunate they get chopper shot a lot and things like that, and they'll go out under crops and farmers will shoot them. So it's a bit of a shame to hear things like that happening. You have pockets of them, you work hard for them, and you'll have opportunities. That's my next on my list, mate, red deer. Definitely a red deer. I've got to get my uh, – on my last trip, it was only a small eater, but um, I had a similar thing. I sat and waited in a spot, and a couple of deer came out, and this is the first time. And some people say it's it's, it's – can be normal. Uh, I saw a deer come out onto this place that I was sitting, and I, I, honestly, it was very dark, chocolatey fallow. But I thought it was a fallow at the time because I didn't get a good look at it because it was sort of in the grass. And then all of a sudden, to the left, uh, something just caught my eye. So I looked to the left, and there was a nice, really nice coloured fallow. Uh, just it was it was just an immature buck, but still, I thought I'd, this would be great for meat. Thought, okay, well, I'll go for the fallow. Go for the fallow. That's the one I prefer to take. The other one's a lot. The fallow, which I thought was a fallow, was a lot smaller. I shot the uh, fallow, which was a great shot. Boom, down straight away, and all of a sudden, the the other deer, which I thought was a fallow, ran up around, literally right in front of me. Stopped, turned, and I end up getting two, and end up giving you know the meat away to friends and family, and enjoyed the meat back at camp. We ate the heart, etc. And then, but when I went over to the one, the dark chocolate one that I thought it was a fallow, it was actually a uh, juvenile sambado. Oh, okay. Yeah, sambado. Could not believe it. Couldn't. And it, so I was like, do you know fallow deer and samba hang out together because they were right next to each other? 
I couldn't believe it. I'm like, is that normal? Is that regular thing that you see more often? The species hanging out together? Apparently it is. Well, I, I, guess, I guess with the spread of, the, of deer across the country these days, it's something we're going to be seeing more and more of, you know. Um, there's either fallow deer spread or samba and russo. That, those populations are going to be mixing in and mingling in together. So I think it's something we will see a lot more of into the future, you know. Crazy. I couldn't believe it. I and mean, people say, yeah, it can happen depending on time of year. And I was just shocked. Yeah, I'm course. like, because one was dark and I'm thinking, then the other one, because the samba, sorry, the um, fallow bark was so like really light colored because in this forest there's a mixture of those there's you know really dark chocolate fallow and then a lot of the lighter fallow and even in this particular yeah yeah, even this one i've actually seen in this particular area i've actually seen like a real i don't know if it's a probably not an albino one but it's really really white it's almost like the 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 golden mecca deer of fallow you know (laughs) one that you want to get you know if you could actually get it be one to a great one to get taxidermied and actually to hang on the wall. But, you know, they're not stupid. That's why they've been alive for as long as they have because they're not silly. They don't fall for stupid things. So, 100%. We only ever shoot the stupid animals, I believe. So, <laughs> The smart ones haven't been shot yet. And I guess yeah, it goes to, it. to, to you know, testify to, doesn't it, that, you know, the, the, the good big animals, the ones that potentially may not have come in contact with a hunter before, but if they have, you know, these are the ones that are, you know, are smart. These are the old, the old, the old bulls, so to speak. That you know, are not easy to hunt. They're the ones that have, you know, they, they didn't grow old for a reason. I mean, they're experienced. They get out there and they don't, they, they don't allow themselves to get in a position to be, to be, to be hunted sometimes. Yeah, I'm, I'm a big believer that it, with some animals, they have to make. You can do everything right, but they still have to make a mistake for you to be able to harvest them with a bow. I'm a big believer in that. Like I've noticed, there's one particular boar on a block I hunt. And he's very erratic in his movements. And I've stalked this boar at least six or seven times now. I know exactly where he lives. Yet every time I thought I've been getting winded from him, getting about 100 yards away, next thing he will just get up and from where he's feeding and run 200 yards flat out and stop and then start feeding again. And I've sort of been like, did he wind me and has calmed down again? And I'm like, nah, because if he's winded me, he would have just um, buggered off for good. Um, but what's been happening is I watched him the other afternoon. I was about 300 yards away, wind in my face, so obviously that's not an issue. I'm watching him through my spotting scope. He feeds for about two minutes, literally stops, and will just run, canter to 200 yards to another spot and feed again for about a minute. I think that's a pig that's been bow hunted several times before or been shot at and missed and knows that if he does this, he cannot get shot. It's, you know it's, what I mean? Like he's, he's adapted his behaviour from a past experience and it's going to be very hard to shoot that ball with a bow because he has been doing that every single time I've seen him feeding of an afternoon in this particular spot. And it's nigh impossible for me to get in range because he's there one moment and then he's 200 yards away the next. I think we can't underestimate. That's one thing I've really come forward on, especially is the is the wind. Yes, you know, it's very unforgiving, very unforgiving. And I've never, I've literally had bucks. One, one was honestly one, one I ended up getting, uh, one I didn't. Uh, it was almost the exact same similar situation in the way they they came into my setup. It was the exact same spot I'd shot one before. It came past me to my right, and I'm like just staring at it going around past me. And literally, it got to my let's say I'm at the six o'clock position, it got to my sort of three o'clock on my right, diagonal right. And as soon as it hit my wind trail, you should have seen it push back off its front legs like it had literally like it had been shot and literally just bolted as fast as it could down this open area. And I was like, oh, my God, look, it's still going like a kilometer down, and it's still at full steam. It's still at full steam. I, I couldn't believe it. It's, yeah, and for the people listening, like an animal will never second guess its nose because it knows that is the smell of a human. That is definite 100% danger. 
Yeah. Whereas if they see a bit of movement, they've got time to investigate. They're not sure. What is that? Is that a kangaroo in the bushes? What What is that? But with their nose, there is no second guessing that that human scent is 100% danger and they're getting out of there. I've always wondered what they thought too. You know, like you've probably come up on animals that are, you know, you might come up on a pig, there's three or four of them, 10 of them, whatever it may be, and you shoot one of them or even the same thing with a rifle, you know, where they hear that bang and if you miss, I wonder what they think. You know, do they think, well, is that something, you know, I, don't, I guess they're not probably not smart enough to think, well, that's somebody shooting me, but bang, there's a noise. What is danger. that? Danger, get out of there. What? Where's that sound? Because sometimes I said I've had the one where I've missed an easy shot. I've I'm probably not as good as you know shooting freehand uh, and standing up as I am sort of being on the ground from a prone position. But you know I've shot them and sort of they're, they're not they didn't know where it came from and they've sort of ran back at me. That especially happens with goats as well. We're on a hill one time and I thought, nah, my mate goes, come down. I can hear him down there. And I thought, nah, I've got a feeling it's getting closer. And we were up on the hill, probably about 20 or 30 metres just as it sort of starts to go up the hill. My mate shot two of the goats. Then they literally ran right at us. It's the most, I wish I had a camera on, a, on, the, on this hunt because it would have been the most excellent footage I've ever seen. And literally I could have grabbed the goats how far they ran past us, you know, like after we shot them because their first natural instinct was to bang, go straight up to the hill yeah and i think with a rifle um it's so much noise it'd be harder to pinpoint where it's coming from um with a bow a lot of the times bang and they just look straight at you or yep that's where that's come from see you later um but in saying that if you're in steep country a lot of times you'll shoot a boar he's going to run the path of least resistance which is generally downhill if you're downhill and near an animal pad you can almost bet nine times out of ten he's going to come funneling down straight past you half the time, um, but they'll take that path of least resistance. Excellent, man. Great podcast. So Nick from Ozcut Broadheads. Thanks for your time, mate, on the show. If anyone wants to purchase any products, you heard where to go. Uh, Ozcut Broadheads, if you want to purchase them. Mate, thanks for your time. Thanks for appreciate your uh, insight on uh, bow hunting. I like seeing your stuff on Instagram, so you can follow him on there as well. I appreciate sharing everything in the story, mate. Appreciate it. No worries, Jay. Once again, mate, it was good fun. Thanks for having me on the podcast. You've been listening to an episode of the Australian Hunting Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. See you next time.